Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, We're in a new series, or I'm sorry, we're finishing up a series uh, called The World's Gone Mad, and I'm sorry that that doesn't have any relevance for our lives and our world today, right? Uh, This is an issue that we're talking about anger. And, and uh, I was thinking about this um, this week. I am not a, a native of the Cincinnati area, but like probably a lot of you, I'm tuning in uh, to the Thursday night football game, right? I'm watching the Bengals and the Browns. And, and, and here's what happened. Now, my wife is from Northeast Ohio, so she is a Browns fan. She is an Indians fan. She goes for all of that good stuff. And uh, it wasn't just out of vindictiveness, which it usually is, but I found myself cheering for the Bengals. I I couldn't believe it. Like, I am a diehard Colts fan growing up in Indianapolis, and I remember, oh, probably six, seven years ago, when Peyton Manning was released by the Colts. If you don't know, Peyton Manning is the greatest quarterback who ever lived, just so you're aware. But Peyton Manning left the Colts after dealing with all sorts of issues and his health and injuries and and, and so on and so forth, and the Colts moved on. And so Peyton Manning signed a deal with the Denver Broncos. And it was interesting, if you remember back, that was the year when the Colts started another quarterback that I really liked, a, a Purdue Boilermaker named Curtis Painter, and they did not have a good year, right? And so it was weird. Around town, you would drive by, and on the marquees of the sports bars and things like that, they would advertise the games they were going to be listing, the games they're going to be showing that Sunday. And I, you would see sports bars in Indianapolis advertising, this is where you can watch Peyton play with the Broncos. And, and it, was, it was odd, right? It was odd. You would be walking around, you would see number 18 in the, in the orange and blue of the Broncos jerseys. And to quote the prophet Jerry Seinfeld, sometimes you're just cheering for laundry. Sometimes you're just cheering for laundry. Maybe you grew up and you knew a certain team had a certain culture, right? You knew how Magic's Lakers were going to play. You knew how Bird's Celtics were going to play. You knew that that team had a culture, had an attitude, and because they had a head coach for so many years, star players that stayed for so many years, that was kind of a given. Well, with free agency, with, with player empowerment, with turnover of coaches and different systems and schemes, that doesn't really happen anymore. And so we find ourselves still cheering for laundry. But I don't know about you, but I'm super excited about the Reds right now, right? They lost last night, but they won six in a row. Before that, they'd won like seven of the last eight. They were, they were, they were rolling. They were, they were right there in the hunt. They'd make the playoffs if the season ended today, which who knows, it might. You know, that's the kind of way the season's gone. But but I find myself thinking about that, like, why am I getting so invested in this? I think about this a lot, because I used to be the guy who would yell at the TV, and today I'm still going to go home, and I'm still going to try to watch as much football as possible this afternoon into this evening. But why do I get so excited? And, And why do I find so much joy when the enemy, in my case that's the Patriots, but the enemy has failure when they struggle? Why is it that I, I, I find so much joy in that? Why is it so fun for me when it becomes about us versus them? And why is it so easy for me, whether it's sports or something far, far more serious, for that us versus them mentality to set root and anger to come in? So we're in this series called The World's Gone Mad, because honestly, it feels that way. The temperature of our conversations is, is, is heightened, whether it's in person or online. Uh, the, the tone and the, the vitriol is, is, is rampant. It's not going to get calmer. 
So this week, or, or I'm sorry, this last three weeks, we've looked in this series at three different ways in which we tend to direct our anger. Week one, we talked about how we are often angry at me. We are angry at ourselves, right? We beat ourselves up for past mistakes, for regrets, for patterns of behavior that we wish we wouldn't do. We're angry at ourselves, things that weren't done. But we talked about this. I try to communicate this. Let me say it again. We learned that God's grace is bigger than anything we have done or not done. We can let go of our anger towards ourselves when we embrace grace, when we start to believe it. We start to believe that there's nothing that we can do to drive us from the love of God. There's nothing we can do to earn more of that love either, but particularly in the regret, guilt, shame world, Jesus has none of that. That is not of God. Last week, Keith did such a good job uh, sharing with us about this, this idea of being angry at us, at us and other followers of Jesus, other Christians. We learned that very clearly through Scripture that the dream here is that the church would be very unified. But to do that, we have to extend grace to one another because it's sometimes really hard to forgive the cousin, the brother, the sister, the parent, It's a lot harder to forgive them than it is sometimes to forgive the stranger. Well, today we're talking about that. We're talking about those others. We're talking about what happens when we're angry at them. When we look at the world, there's a lot of things that make us mad. And as Christ followers, too often I think we've kind of got caught up in an argument where the anger drives the bus. Now, often I would say this, that our anger can be well-directed. Like, we can be right, but we can still be a jerk. And if we're right and a jerk, we're wrong. If we're right and we're a jerk, we're wrong. And I think my wife would probably aim into that if that's the kind of church we were, because that's my issue, right? I like to win. I like to win the argument. I know for me, I've blown this up so many times. Andy Stanley, as pastor and author and leader, says this. He says, never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. In this kind of zero-sum game that's win or nothing, right? Like second means you're the first, last person, right? Like, like this whole idea that if you're not winning, you're losing gets into our relationships, gets into the way we treat other people. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves when we start to get angry is we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we operating from the gospel? So are we operating for the gospel? And then two kind of questions off of that that might be helpful would be to say this. Is something being added to the gospel? Or is something being taken away from the gospel? Let's talk about that idea of being something added, something added on, that you have to believe the gospel, this idea that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the grave so we can have life and life abundantly here and through eternity. If we add to that, we're missing the point. We're screwing this up. Think about it this way. The early church, we'll read about this. You can read about this in Acts, that fifth book of the New Testament. You'll see where one of the big issues, one of the big questions were is, if you're following Jesus, if you become a Christian, do you have to become a Jew? Do you have to embrace all the dietary laws? Men, do you have to be circumcised? I think the conversation would have gotten a little heated at that point, right? And there's all this thought, like, like, do you have to do this, this believing in Jesus, accepting his grace, and take other steps here? And unequivocally, particularly Paul, points out that that's not what this is about. It's not about adding things on. 
kind of right after that generation after the writers of the new testament right after that first generation the second generation of the church dealt with this heresy issue this false teaching issue and it's this greek word called gnosticism now gnosticism is essentially this that there's this secret knowledge that there's this kind of this leveling up that you have to do as a follower of jesus that you have to kind of attain this and only the most holy only the most pious only the most enlightened will reach that and it kind of created this divide and so we see modern versions of this when things are added or taken away from the gospel we imply or we flat out state that someone isn't a real Christian because they aren't doing enough. They're not fighting that right fight when they don't think about policies or morality or politics a certain way. That you have to join a certain team to be in the right. That you have to join, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will do all of these things. That's something added on. That's something that is not needed. That is something that's counterproductive. Following Jesus isn't about joining a certain team. It isn't about winning and losing because we've already won. We've been adopted into this family and there's nothing we can do to improve that status. We are co-heirs with Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are on that inheritance line with Jesus in God's kingdom and the way that God views the world, the way that God wants things to be. So followers of Jesus, we are to be wise. We are to be discerning, but we are not called to join a certain team, and we are definitely not called to vilify the opponents, whoever they may be. Things are added, they're taken away, we can recognize this, but our reaction shouldn't be to throw the whole thing out, right? We can recognize there are things that, they're, they're wrong about this, that are getting thrown in here, wrapped into the gospel, but that doesn't mean we throw out the gospel as well. I, I believe this, and I think this is a clear argument you can make from Scripture. These these these. In my, my, my belief, truth, ultimately, that followers of Jesus should value life from conception to grave. The followers of Jesus should see racism as an attack on this value of life for all. I, I think that any time that someone is, is barred or kept away because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, whether it be in church circles or in society, that this is a sin, this is a problem. The same goes when we think about caring for the poor, the marginalized, the defenseless. We are called to serve. We are called to prioritize life for all, first and foremost. That's a given. That's the gospel. That, that, that God loves all, that Jesus died and rose for all. But then we see things getting added in, politics, policies, philosophies, attitudes. And we bristle at these things, and we say we have to throw the whole thing out. I think about today, we have this, this national reckoning, this national conversation that I think is needed about race, but then there's all these other kind of ways in which they can solve it. Different groups are coming up with different ways, the philosophies and methods, and I see well-thought, you know, reasonable people, Christians saying, no, 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 that's too much, we can't go there. And they may be right, but the issue is, is they go far and they say, well, we can't even, we don't have to deal with this issue of race, race at all. We get so concerned about fighting about critical race theory or cultural Marxism or how the police should or shouldn't be or to what extent be funded that we miss the gospel. We get wrapped up in baseless conspiracy theories like QAnon, some sort of secret knowledge and end up taking away from the gospel. We focus on legislation, policies, or Supreme Court decisions, so much so that they become our answer as opposed to the gospel. And for me, 
If you would have met me at a certain point in my life, I was a jerk. I joke with my wife, this is before I met her, oh, there's probably some overlap, she would contend, but before I met her, I was a real jerk. I had this understanding that following Jesus meant you joined certain teams, you got in certain groups that this is who you are. And my big dream in life was not to be a pastor, my big dream in life was to get into politics. And I had it all kind of laid out. And in my mind, you couldn't do what I am doing now. You couldn't follow Jesus if you weren't on a certain team. You know, I've been that guy. I've been that guy arguing that a Christian has to vote a certain way. And I read today, there are pastors I respect, pastors with with, with large churches and incredible platforms and incredible years of service and love and faithfulness to Jesus proclaiming that you have to vote a certain way. I bristle at that for a number of reasons, but fundamentally I bristle at that because, not to be cliche, but Jesus isn't on the ballot. Not to be cliche, but there's, there's, there's no clear-cut answer in my mind. I would like to hear how you see it that way. So you see, for me, I think that this idea, this, this idea that we have to join a certain team that leads to the anger ultimately leads to division. Sure, vote. Absolutely. Engage. Be informed. Please do that. Form, hold, and share opinions, but don't be a jerk about it. If you're right and you're a jerk, you're still wrong. In that moment of being a jerk, you aren't following Jesus. We, as followers of Jesus, have a role to play. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So Paul sums up the grand work of God through Jesus. That God is reconciling the world. That we are now able to connect with God. That relationship, there's a way there. There's now a bridge that we can connect with God. We can experience the divine. We can experience love and acceptance. We can experience family. We can experience purpose. All of this has happened because of what Jesus has done. That bridge has been made. Now in the same way, that work has been turned over to us us broken selfish impatient argumentative divisive people that we are we have been given this see our relationship with the world always comes down to the mission it is ridiculous it is absurd that god would entrust us with this but he does not allow us to think that it is just up to us He's still partnering with us through his spirit. He is still leading us forward. Step back and ask, am I building unity? Am I an agent of the gospel? Am I bringing about grace in those I'm interacting with? Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. How do we live? 
If we've asked ourselves this question of how do we live, we ask ourselves, is this what I'm starting with, my starting point, my anger? Is this a gospel anger? Is this a holy indignation? If we're there and we say yes, then how do we move forward without just becoming a jerk? How do we move forward in a way in which we are living well, in a way in which we are faithful? Paul again writes this in, in Colossians chapter 4. Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anyone. See, Paul is addressing general principles of how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to follow Jesus here. And when it comes to our connection with the world, whether that's going to work or the drive through or neighbors or whatever it is, when we're interacting with people, Paul instructs the church, you and I, to make the most of every opportunity now that's a that's a phrase that might come up in like those like uh, intentionally ironic like uh motivational posters right the stuff you would see like on michael scott's wall in the office right like like all that like like the cat like hang in there like on a branch or something weird like that this make most of every opportunity it kind of sounds a cliche so what it really means like the literal translation would be to to buy everything up all right so think back to march april and like toilet paper was like a commodity right like for like a, for a minute there and people would go to costco and buy as much as they can or maybe you can think back to the times when black friday or you're shopping for the thing for your kid and and things were getting out of hand but this idea of buying everything up jesus tells this parable that the kingdom of god the way of life of god is like when someone finds this buried treasure in a field and the man who found it goes and sells everything to buy that field he risks everything Paul is telling us that we should risk everything. We should make the most out of every opportunity to be salt, to be full of grace. See, the question I want us to wrestle with, what if we saw the opportunity to help people find and follow Jesus with the same intensity that we saw with getting out the vote, with the same intensity we saw with convincing people of our opinions, with the same intensity we saw of whatever it is that we get so fired up and angry about? What if, what if that grace mindset began to change? Now, I'm not telling you that you've got to, you know, go, go burn all your sports memorabilia and, and, and protest the vote and renounce citizenship. I'm not saying that. But what if we begin to think of our lives as we, how are we being agents of grace here? Paul doesn't merely say that we make the most of every opportunity in a strategic way. He tells us to make sure our conversations are full of grace. I know about, I don't know about you, but I know that there's been multiple times where I have not been full of grace. I've not given the benefit of the doubt. I have not allowed that person to explain things. I have not tried to put myself in their spot, try to understand why would they be so upset? Why would they be so frustrated? Because ultimately, we have to wrestle with this. We have to, we have to understand that we can be right and be a jerk and be wrong. Ed Stetzer is a pastor and author I follow a lot, and uh, he wrote a book that I think is it, it's incredible. It was written last year, and it was published last year, but it's called Christians in the Age of Outrage. Christians in an Age of Outrage. He says this. He says, I don't know that Christians can solve all the outrage issues. I think the culture has just turned up the volume to 11, and it's just going all in on the outrage. So what I would say is we need to show a countercultural message. The gospel's always been countercultural. It's always shown a different way. When the world's running this way, the scriptures teach a different way. Jesus calls us to a better way. So I think the better way is not to join in and turn up the outrage volume, but instead to enter in on a mission. 
enter into him. Jesus calls us to a better way, that we are so focused on being right, we are so focused on showing others that they are wrong, that we miss the greater purpose. We miss that we are called to live with a mission. So when we are angry at others, when we are angry at them, what are we supposed to do? I think we are supposed to embody grace. We're supposed to live counterculturally and embody grace. So here is what I mean by this. To embody grace means to see and hear people through the lens of care, compassion, and genuine love, particularly the other jerks in our lives. To embody grace means to not add fuel to the fight, but to be part of a different way. To embody grace means to be Jesus to a world that is in desperate need of him. Your opinions... Your arguments, what you share on social media, your politics, who you vote for, are not helping people find and follow Jesus. They're not helpful. Grace is helpful. So how do we do this? How do we live into this grace? How do we embody it? Not just receive it and say, yes, this is for me. Yes, I am forgiven. How do we embody it? How do we live it out? The first thing that I think we have to do, step one, is we have to remember our identity. Remember who we are. Look at what Scripture says as to who you are, who God says, says you are, that in Christ you are a different person. Your identity is not your stance on a hot-button issue. Your identity is not what you share on social media. Your identity is not your family, your achievements, or whatever. Your identity is who God says that you are. He says you are chosen. He says you are his child. He says you are a new creation. He says you are forgiven. He says you are loved. He says you are accepted. He says you are his masterpiece. As followers of Jesus, our identity is found in the truth of those words. This is who we are. This is whose we are. You are a person who walks freely in the grace of God if you have said yes to Jesus. And when you remember that, it becomes the first step in helping you embody grace to others. So rooted in your identity in Jesus, you can move on to step two, find an affirmation. This is so hard when we're interacting with other people. When we feel that anger building in us, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come back and they're still talking, but our argument is locked and loaded. It is chambered and we can't wait to spit it out at them because this is going to be the knockout punch. We are going to take care of this. Notice all of my metaphors there. It's a gun. It's violence. It's a punch. It is angry. It is violent. You are going to get destroyed by what I have to say. When we feel that anger, we have to find an affirmation. In those conversations, in those face-to-face or online conversations that have potential to explode in anger, instead of jumping in point and counterpoint, we need to challenge one another a to just shut up and remove ourselves from that or b find ways to find an affirmation about the other person their view or their opinion the writer of proverbs says this he says a gentle answer deflects anger but harsh words make tempers flare my point is if i'm willing to lay down my need to win an argument. And I'm talking to myself here. I've talked to myself. When I have an argument with the person I love the most on this world, my wife, I want to win. And when I lay that down, when I get rid of that need to win, guess what? My life on the long term is a lot better. Amen, Amen right? 
But when we think about this, if this is a person who matters to us, why do we need to win? Why are we so angry? We have to find a way to affirm this person because a gentle answer deflects anger. Find some common ground you can agree on. Flash forward here about six weeks with me. Less than that, actually. Thanksgiving. And uncle so-and-so or cousin so-and-so or aunt or dad or brother or sister brings up the issue of the day that divides. Probably politics. Just going to take a wild guess, right? Guess what? Find some common ground on the fact that aunt so-and-so or your mom dried out the turkey. Find some common ground on the kids that did this at school and aren't they cute or aren't they a handful. Find some common ground. Find that affirmation in those moments. So we come back to our identity. Who are we and whose are we? We come back to this. In the moment of that, we got to first find an affirmation because the relationship is a lot, lot, lot more important than the argument. And third, we have to ask good questions. I have never yelled at someone and convinced them of something. I've been trying with my kids. It's still not working. I have never yelled my way to a better relationship. I have been right a lot, but because I've been a jerk, I've still been wrong. So we ask good questions. We take a posture of learning. We set out to understand. Because you don't need to win the argument. Asking good questions demonstrates you are willing to learn, willing to understand. Even if you'll never agree, even if you think your mind's made up, asking questions diffuses that anger in your life. It may not diffuse their anger, but at least it diffuses yours. So here are some good questions to ask. Honestly, here are some good ones. Just asking, what brought you here? What brought you to this conclusion? How did you get to this place? Secondly, what brings you the most joy because of this belief or stance? Kind of pointing out like, hey, why are you so angry about this? Like, what, what is it about this that, that gives you joy here? And ask, is it joy or is it security, right? Because so much we get angry, we're angry because we see something threatening our security. We think that we are threatened. It's a fear reaction. So where's the joy here? It's not because everything has to be, you know, puppies and rainbows, but where is the joy? Third question is this. How does this belief or stance help you? Is it helpful? Is it helpful? Does it make you a better person? It gives you the opportunity to better understand the person, why they believe what they believe or feel the way they feel. And if after listening to the other person and they ask you questions in return, you, you respond as, as Peter says in his, his uh, letter that we read as First Peter about gentleness and respect, that that's how you deal with other people. That's how you talk to other people. However, if the other person doesn't ask for your opinion, they don't seek to understand your perspective, it's okay. It's okay because you don't have to win. And in your effort to win, you're going to run the risk of ruining the relationship. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. You can be right, and you can be a jerk, and you'll still be wrong. If there's not gentleness and respect, if we're not doing our best to make, we're not, not, all we're doing is trying to make a point and engaging or winning an argument, this isn't beneficial for anyone. It's not helping anyone find and follow the way back to God. I'd suggest this. Next time you're on Facebook and you see something you want to comment, ask yourself this. Can I send that person a direct message? Do I have that kind of relationship with them that they would receive that? Can I, can I, can I take this off the line a little bit? If the answer is no, keep scrolling, right? Go find the pictures of your friend's kids that are cute, right? Like, keep scrolling. But if you can't engage that way, take the, take the venom out of things a little bit. Ask them honestly, 
before the conversation gets out of control. Because in this age of outrage, our world is in desperate need of people who will embody grace. And these aren't people who roll over and die. These aren't passive people. As followers of Jesus, we are called not only to embrace the grace that God has given us and extend that grace to other people, we are called to be grace to a broken and bruised world. The Apostle Paul puts this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we embody grace in this age of outrage, we look different to the world. Stop living into the stereotypes that Christians are hateful, bigoted, argumentative people. Stop living into the jerk stereotype of followers of Jesus. And I'm telling that to myself as well. Because when we settle for merely making a point, we haven't made a difference. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And we're going to wrap things up here with a song. We're going to take communion.